This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me uh, today is someone who is drastically, again, uh, another guest that's overqualified, another Heat fan um, that has been out there in the world, and another Heat fan that's discovered the podcast and reached out. And before I get to any of this man's actual credentials as a creative uh, person, um, one of the things that 100% sold me on his bona fides, to use his words, was that he has bootleg figures, action figures of Heat characters. Now, if you, if anyone out there also has them, that also means that you are qualified to be on this show. I'm talking to Mr. Jordan Harper. He is an Edgar Award-winning crime novelist. He's written and produced shows like Gotham, The Mentalist, and unfortunately, and I'm sorry, Jordan, to sort of bring it up because I'm sure it is quite a sore spot. It was the writer of the LA Confidential pilot with Walton Goggins that I was just dying to see, but unfortunately he's not going to, was not picked up. So Jordan Harper, on that sad note, but on the brilliant note of your heat action figures that I have seen a picture of, welcome <laughs> to One Heat Minute. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so excited to get to be as nerdy as I truly am for just <laughs> one one short period of time about this movie. Um, no, yeah, it's 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 crazy. We were talking off the off the air about um, just how much you can talk about this film and how much we're about to talk about uh, a minute that I think would pass by on a lot of other movies and not be worth talking about for however long we're going to be nerds about this, but I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Look, it's, uh, and we we're at, we're at a great, and I often say this, but it's uh, the way I'd liken it, Jordan, I don't know if it's like you is you sometimes buy an album or a great record of a band that you like. And then there's the, the singles, you know, those, the, the big tracks. And I feel like mm-hmm. Heat is that movie. It's got these like big tracks, but then what happens is if you're obsessed and you obsessively listen to an album, um, it starts to be the songs that you didn't really like on the first listen that sort of start to emerge as your favorite tracks. Sometimes, you know, they they sort of start to do these things, and and that's what I find with this film. In this particular minute that we're talking about, which is, can you believe it, the ninety seventh minute of <laughs> Heat? Um, we it, it's a great little scene that really begins uh, with Vincent Hanna. Uh, exclaiming his final frustration at the fact that they've just completely lost Neil's crew. And then one of the great things that I think any Michael Mann and Heat nerd loves is watching the, the, the criminal pros actually do their thing and sort of hiding in a, in the bowels of an underground car park 
with Danny Trejo's beautiful gleaming black car. Um, and and <laughs> I thought you were going to say beautiful gleaming black hair. <laughs> it both. It's his his yeah. hair looks like his car in this scene, um, and, and 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 you actually get to see these guys on a job when there isn't a cop watching them. They're just sort of do, going going through the motions. So it's a really lovely scene. But Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to jump straight into this minute, guys. Jordan and I are going to watch this minute together, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Where the fuck these people? There it is. There it is. There it is. It's it, it's it's wonderful and it's minimalism. And uh, you know, I mean, just to jump right in, if I can, the most obvious thing about it is there's no dialogue. No. You know, we're watching these guys work, and there are no words shared whatsoever. And we don't need words. Uh, what we're what they're doing is is both so arcane and so obvious that it's just a pleasure to watch them work. Yeah, and it's also. There's these moments where it's, I like this scene because it's, of its validation. They don't have to say anything, but you already know these guys are good. But I find like when people don't talk and they just do things effortlessly, you talk about it a lot in sports, you know, they can just sense what the other people are going to do. They don't need to say a single word to know each other. And I love now, this is like the only, the, the final callback to Kelso, um, Tom Noonan's mm-hmm. great character, is like he actually was legit. Like they're, cl- yeah. they, 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 they're, they're, they're cutting out concrete holes in the wall and reading his plans and they work like, uh, like that's the one little, little sort of gleaming moment I like in this minute. It's like, oh, well he's, he's actually not bullshitting. He can legitimately, <laughs> you know, they can reroute the alarms. There's this, this makes it a very uneven party when they go to this heist in the next minute. I think a lot of people forget that it's like the cops are only accidentally there. Yes. Or intentionally there um, from uh, from Wayne Gross messing around with Van Zandt, which we're about to see some foreshadowing in the next minute. But yeah, otherwise, this is a cakewalk. They've killed the alarms. They're in and out in the, t- the allotted time. Their driver's ready. It's just that one, you know, that, that uh, anonymous tip-off that's kind of put them there. But no, I, I, love, I love this slow, sweeping silence of this shot because especially after all the bluster in the previous minute of them and and we kick this minute off like where the fuck does anyone know where the fuck these people are and then it just like cut to we do yeah (laughs) the audience (laughs) the audience does it's a nice little like oh the audience knows where they are they're 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 underneath this bank they're underneath this place doing this next job yeah and, and and let's talk about the the precision of both these guys and Michael Mann, because there's two things going on here. First, as you point out, 
it's a very, very easy cut there of where are these guys cut to here are these guys. Yes. <laughs> uh, but just also the precision of there's a shot in the middle and, and you referenced it where um, Michael is, is looking at the plans and we didn't see those plans with Kelso. Um, we see them in the car with John Voigt as we're getting the download on Hannah. Yes. Uh, and it's just a flash. You know, we're, we're thumbing through Hannah's file. We're thumbing through all that other stuff. And then just, oh, and here's the schematics. Yep. And, and so it's all tied together visually. Um, and, and just a precise, just here's that shot. It's almost the same shot. The shot of De Niro, uh, of, of Neil looking at the plans, and then of, of, of Tom Sizemore's character looking at the plans. So even if you don't register it, which you probably don't on your first viewing of no, Heat, it's, no. it's all there, you know? And and what is great about that is it's so precise that sometimes I like I, I almost laugh now looking at it because it's it's dealt with, with such it's almost like comedic timing. That's one of the things that Vincent mm-hmm. plays. Like he, he helps to ease the the overall tension of the film. But it, like in a you've seen cuts like that in comedies. Yes. You know, like, does anyone know where the fuck these people are? Cut to them. Like, we, <laughs> like, that's, that's a, that's a cute little, like, well, we know where they are. And it's, but it's done, it, the tone with which it's done is just like, it's this sort of effortless cool. It's like, yeah, we know where they are. This is the movie. Yeah. You know, and, and <laughs> it's, and it, it could be played with like a twist of comedy or whatever, but I just love that the turn of phrase and then the beautiful sweeping shot. It's just like, of course we know where they are. We're going to go back to these guys. These are lovely little echoes of these crews working. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of, it's, you've got the continuity, that beautiful Kelso continuity, you know, through the schematics. And then you've got, I love also workplaces, you know, these guys are creating a Mm -hmm. mess, but everything's orchestrated very, you know, organized, you know, they've got these big drop sheets They're They've got scaffolding They're They've got all their equipment there. They've got masks on, um, and their overall or the coveralls rather. Um, and you know, Vincent's office, which is this, you know, the, this, again, a sort of a bit of a concrete bunker, is, is mm-hmm. chaos at that moment. Like it's, these guys are order, even though they're about to do something quite chaotic and, and Vincent's team are all like all, all out of sorts at this moment. They, <laughs> they literally clutching at straws and these guys are still, they're still going. There's something, I don't know. It's, um, it's like, you cannot kill these guys. You cannot, you, you, you nothing can stop them. Uh, it's not just, I mean, not only are they completely ordered, but at this point in the film, we're really getting a, a really clear picture of what this crew's still uh, skill stacks are. Yes. And, you know, in a bad movie, you'd say, oh, Chris, he's the bomb man. And, and Michael, <laughs> he does the electronics. He's a computer guy. And Trejo, he's the wheel man. Uh, <laughs> and, and we never do that on Heat. But what we do see is... We and see you do a Chris cutaway. Man. You do a cutaway to each actor, like, winking at the winking at the like <laughs> yeah. the, the screen for everyone to know it's almost like that's the that is that the opening credits to the a team that you just said like pro- yes i think it is <laughs> face and and uh i can't remember the rest of their skills no, no. uh ba is the muscle yes but um but so we've seen chris was the one who bought the, the shape charges he's the one who i believe plants the 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 shape charges on the back of the truck mm-hmm. um he's the one who's going to open up the safe uh when they're hitting the precious metals depot so he is the guy who opens things up, and he is the one knocking out the concrete here. Yes. Uh, which seems like brutal work, but think about what they're doing. They have gone below a mainframe computer 
and are knocking out the floor underneath a mainframe computer at precisely the right place yes. to replace a circuit board, which is nuts. I mean, it's nuts. <laughs> and, and, and it's and it's even more nuts because it's like they've got to find the precise spot in that car park because they know that the mainframe is there and obviously for installation purposes or whatever is there. But then to cut the box out and to yeah. cut through concrete plus cut up into the mainframe at the perfect precision so they can pluck it out and Michael yeah. can tweak all of the different things to reroute the alarms. Yeah, it's it's um, it's that kind of patience work and yeah precision that Chris and concentration that I think mm-hmm. is just all over his character. He's just this, he's just so, uh, so focused and so intense and just right on the money every single scene. But yeah, it's, you, you're so right. It's like, they seem like two different things. And I, and I, I know you're a huge thief fan, but it's the same sort of, uh, thing with the, with the burner when they're burning through the mm-hmm. safe in thief, which is like, that's such physical laboring work when you would think a safe yeah. is like intricate, like, you know, gadgets and, uh, and gears to sort of open things. But this one's like, no, we're going to set fire to it. We're going to turn this thing into lava and we're going to open it up. And that's how we're going to get through it. No. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, uh, you know, Chris, who is presented also as a brute is actually the guy who, who reprograms the alarms again in the precious metal depot. And again, here he is, as in Heat, uh, or I'm sorry, in Thief, uh, Jim Belushi's character is the one who does all the wire work. Yes. Here we see, even though Chris is the brutal guy with the like, thousand-yard stare that beats any other, he is also the guy who can reprogram computers as long as he's got the schematics here. Yes, yes. And, and, and once more, Danny Trejo drives, although, correct me if I'm wrong, we barely ever see Danny Trejo actually drive in this film. I think there's... I, I was. I was trying to think about it. It's he's standing next to a beautiful El Camino in an upcoming uh-huh. scene. And he's in this car. I think the only time we actually, Oh no, there's two times and it's in the opening heist. Right. We, we see him go right on schedule. You know, he's sort of driving along as we're all converging to that, that focus point uh, of the, of the opening heist scene. And then he's, I think he's behind the wheel in their escape car. When they blow the ambulance, right? Ninety percent sure. You know, I'm ninety five percent sure. I mean, I don't know. Why I'm not just checking. We could go to the tape. I'm going to check right now, so we can just go back. But yeah, I think that's the only two times that we actually see him behind the wheel. The rest of the time, yeah, you're 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 exactly right. He's a uh, sort of He's hog- the guy who stands near cars. Yeah, he sits in cars and looks <laughs> devastatingly cool. That's his entire he job. Really does. <laughs> his entire job. <laughs> yes, thirteen minutes twenty three seconds in the forty. 40- in the oh, I'm gonna quickly kill that sound. Um, in the uh, in the fourteenth minute, Danny Trejo is behind the wheel of a much uglier car. It's like a family station wagon looking car because they want to get out of there pretty uh, pretty anonymously, shall we say? So they they get out of there. But uh, yeah, no, sure. this 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 lovely this lovely car this this lovely shot. It's it's I don't know it's. It's such an anonymous car park, but it does, it just does something. These car parks are always, I don't know whether it's since all the president's men or Terminator. I don't know what it mm-hmm. is, but it's just, there's something about these underground car parks. that just is a reek of dread that, you know, someone's hiding behind every corner and it's, maybe it's that paranoia. They all burst out of that sort of paranoia thriller, but you know, an underground car park in LA, 
not as not as frequently seen in LA movies, but particularly in like Washington movies and New York movies, yeah. underground car parks. And that actually might be the weird, the only weird you know setting. There's an under, there's a massive underground car park in LA um, uh, that's here. Do you know what? I was thinking about when I was watching this minute last night, I was thinking about that. But then when you keep watching and you watch the shootout, and you see where in L.A. it's set. It's actually that part of downtown L.A. is actually ridiculously hilly. And so there are these uh. buildings built on, on slopes. And so there are places where you could walk in on the fifth floor on one street and then come out four floors below it on the street after it. Oh, so right. it's actually not that. That is actually a part of town where you will see underground car parks. Other than that, you're totally right. Yeah. Um, so again, it's it seems weird, but it's just Michael Mann understanding L.A. in a way that like other <laughs> and, people just don't. And a factual L.A. He's never gonna yeah. let like he won't he won't just do something flippantly. He'll uh, he'll he'll just he'll make he'll make it happen. But it's very authentic. It's like the. Um, one of my friends who's been on the show many times, Mr. Garth Franklin, who's a, a news writer for darkhorizons.com, you know, he's very mm-hmm. familiar with LA from lots of trips. And he's like, oh, do you know that the opening car park scene in downtown is is only like a few blocks away, you know, with John Voigt um, sort of mm-hmm. debriefing on the opening heist. He's like, you know, that's only a few real blocks away from where they did the heist. He's like, and I, and uh. cause I hadn't really mapped it out in my head. He's like, it's not far away from where they actually did the heist. So that's, what's even sort of a bit, I don't know, a bit ballsier or a bit, you know, um, uh, playing against your expectation of what Neil would do to get as far away from that heist as possible. But he's like, now that downtown raised car park is not that far away from where that opening heist took place. Therefore he's just sort of that's how good he is. He knows that his entire crew can get away and he can sort of come back into town and he's, you know, anonymous gray outfit and have a conversation uh-huh. with John Voigt. And he's, he's all right. The cops won't necessarily be thinking to look right there for him close by <laughs> debriefing on what's happening. Oh, uh, well, and I'm sure, you know, his, again, in, uh, in collateral, he gets whole plot points out of the way the traffic flows and, you know, that initial oh, yeah. bet, Yes. Of lot, he just his his feeling for LA is just unparalleled, and and it's really, you know, we talked about it earlier, and, and it's not that I won't talk about it, but uh, LA Confidential and James Elroy is the other person who I would say just understands LA in its totality. Yes, um, and, and the more I would dig into when I was writing LA Confidential, the pilot, uh, I would I would read the book and follow the driving routes um, of people <laughs> that he would talk about, and it would always be perfect. And I would Google these names. He would mention some jazz club in the 40s and that they went and just roused. It's just like one name mentioned in a paragraph. And I Googled it. And that was actually the guy who ran that jazz club in the 1940s. And uh, so I, L.A. kind of in its own way demands an obsessive because it is, it is so multivarious and, and so complex. And it's so hard to capture that you really need somebody with these kind of minds to really tell a complete L.A. story. Yes. And... I feel like Elroy and Mann both, like, Elroy's got, like, that topographical map in both the book, and it sort of translates so beautifully to the film, but it's not all of L.A. Like, it's not, you feel like there's L.A. on the fringes, and and Mm -hmm. we feel like, even though this is a deeply L.A. movie in heat, there's still, like, these are, this is the L.A. that people who live there know about. Yeah, maybe us as tourists don't get. And I think that LA Confidential does that to peel it away a little bit. It sets these settings that are on the fringes on the outside and you and you sort of 
you you start in the 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 the, the luxurious sort of hills and and in in these suburbs that are adorned with you know lots of uh, prostitutes are made up to look like movie stars, but at the same time, you're you're then sort of going in. You're sort of taking these little detours into neighborhoods and starting to flesh it all out. I imagine it's like for any folks who've ever played like a Grand Theft Auto game, it's like the map starts to open up to you as you get further into it, but it won't reveal itself until you're in there. Whereas like Heat <laughs> is Heat is like the all the places in LA that you've never even imagined are in LA. You just can't you can't oh, yeah. fathom that they're LA until, you know, you get phenomenal skyline shots or that little, you know, flurry next to Kelso's where you see the I think it's like feels like 12 lanes of traffic it was six going <laughs> one way, six the other. Um, you know, those those ones that are, and and then the obviously the sensational helicopter shot um, uh, the power. Oh, yeah. uh, I think I think it's been dubbed the power move to top all power moves in this show, um, where I'm going to one up you. You can s- sit in a crow's nest and take photos of me, but I'm going to get in a helicopter <laughs> and fly over the whole city. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's that those amazing shots that then translate, it, like you said, directly into collateral. You know, you use it as a plot point to sort of help you sort of uh, stage what's coming next. Yeah, it's it's really. It's it's mind boggling, and and I think one of the things that makes this movie so fascinating, and I would say it's true about the the movie L.A. Confidential, as well as I used to when I was young. I will confess, when I first saw Heat, when I was you know seventeen, eighteen years old, if you'd asked me, I would have said it was thirty minutes too long. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's uh, a, that's a that's a fair that's a fair assessment. Many people just look at the running time and go, "No, nah, it's thirty. It's got to be thirty minutes too long. It's got to be." But, but, Here's how I feel about it now is I feel like it's probably seven or eight hours too short. <laughs> yeah. That, and that isn't that the funny trick of like, you know, you talk about writing LA Confidential as a pilot, like prestige television with things like True Detective that's eight hours long. You're like, oh, well, I could watch eight hours of heat. Totally. Oh, you know, yeah. I, could, I could, you know, the, the, the Carrie Fukunaga heat, I could totally watch, you know, and, and <laughs> that's, and that's the, um, that's the sort of brilliance, um, uh, and ex, an expansive, other storyline threads. And it's, it's weird because Michael Mann's kind of come full circle, right? You know, he was the guy who was mm-hmm. orchestrating Mike, Miami Vice and, and mapping huge story arcs over many, many shows. And then now it's synthesized, even though it's, you know, quite long, you know, still two hours and 50 minutes um, for folks or 170 minutes, as we know, listening to this show. It's, one of the things that's striking to me is that I want to see more. I feel like every one of those threads that adds so much texture to the movie, I could totally see a whole another half an hour about every person. Like I want to see about oh, Donald. Absolutely. I want to see about Donald Breeden. I want to see Wayne grow before. Like I want to see some flashbacks to Wayne grow. I want to see Vincent <laughs> on their previous case. That they just shut down. Um, yeah. I, I want to see Neil, you know, um, uh, I want to see maybe Michael get out of prison. Like, you know, Tom Sizemore's character. I want to see Michael get out of prison. Cause we hear that he's been out recently. He said he's not mm-hmm. doing anything, so I want to see him become part of Neil's crew. Um, you know, I want to see I want to see Justine <laughs> break up with her ex husband. Um, <laughs> I want to see what Ralph was doing that day. You know, there's there's so much of this movie that um, that I think in in especially in discussing it that I'm like, uh, not a minute is wasted. I think that that's no. a that's a really difficult. I think a lot of folks, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, artists aspire to not a minute wasted. Um, and yeah, this one, this movie genuinely doesn't feel like it wastes a minute. 
No, I, I agree. And, and, and just to go back to, yes, there are so many stories that are hinted at here. And I'm sure you talked about it when you had the minute. Like I said, I'm, I'm catching up with the podcast right now <laughs> uh, desperately quickly. But the, just the one minute scene where uh, Wayne Grove goes into the bar and he is a cowboy looking for action. Uh, yep. what, what is that bar? Who is that bartender? Who else is coming in there and giving that line? Yes. I mean, like. <laughs> that, bartender, I, that, that bartender fascinates me. I'm like, yeah. This is another guy like Nate. You know, this is another Nate who was based. You know, Nate was based off of Eddie Bunker. Um, sure. The, yeah, the 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 famous crook turned author um, uh, who wrote, wrote about life as a sort of hustler and a crim. And it feels like uh, that bartender, even though he basically says one line, is like the amoral version of Nate. Like Nate's got some morality. Like maybe don't kill people, do bad stuff. Um, let's just sort of stay on the DL and. Uh, on the down low and, and make sure that we can keep making moves. And that guy's sure. like, Oh, cowboy. Cool. Yeah. I'll send you, <laughs> I'll send you to the wolves. <laughs> I don't care what you want to do. Um, that, yeah, no, I, those little, those little, that bar, that neon light that's over his head. That's another, that's another tremendous cut, um, uh, to the bar, which is Wayne Grove grabs the prostitute. And then that bo- a bottle, <sighs> a bottle opens, which is one of the most dark, uh, match cuts that I think is in this movie. It's so disturbing. And it just like, I can hear that bottle cop bottle top cap coming off. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this is really, really bad. Oh, I mean, no, that's my favorite. Probably edit, probably the best cut in the film. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's legendary. It's good. Uh, it's really good. There's a, uh, it's the kind of cut that you think of like with Edgar Wright or Robert Rodriguez, you know, it's that, it's very, um, it's it's very clever. It's it's I, so I, so so precise and so just like how how do we make how do we um, let your imagination like completely explode and with with a really deft cut and we don't have to show <laughs> you any we don't have to show you anything. I I saw a similar cut this weekend. I was rewatching Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejects, which <laughs> yes. is. Yes. A movie I really like. It is not on this level, but I really like it. But um, Captain Spaulding gets up and says, I, I got to go take a piss. And then it's a smash cut to a cup of coffee being poured. <laughs> yes. And it has the exact same uh, kind of tone of like, it makes you think like, oh, what's wrong with him? Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, and you're, oh, okay. I understand. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like a Rob Zombie, like a a next wave of filmmaker kind of person who's grown up with sort of 70s new Hollywood and stuff and has gotten better. It's like that, um, it was like the new, new Hollywood, you know, the, the Tarantino years. They're the kind of guys that yeah. you associate from that era on, you associate these kind of cuts. They're very clever. They're sort of rediscovering that, you know, French new wave, super yeah. clever, super aware, um, and sort of a little wink without being a wink. It's one of those great subtle winks to camera going, Hey guys, we're making a movie here. But at the same time, it's too, it's, if it's done right, it's so cool and it's just sort of effortless and you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> hey, one question about this scene, um, this minute, which this scene fits almost perfectly in this minute here is, is why isn't Neil there? Yeah, I th- I think in the chronology of the time that we're watching, mm-hmm. Neil's Neil was the last one to dump his car. Yeah. So uh, I've always thought it's a great, firstly, great question. 
I've I, and, and I'm happy for you to disagree because I think that right now we're sort of sort of theorizing. But I've always thought that Neil dumps his car, and he's probably on the way back to something, and they've lost everyone else at this point. These right. guys are here, and part of that means part of Neil. Like if you think about it, or the way that I like to think about it is Neil should have dumped his car. How like let's say twenty minutes earlier, right? Then he should like then then. Uh, um, until Vincent's intervention, going, let's go buy, let, let's let me buy you a cup of coffee. So even if we say in in their movie timeline, it's like twenty minutes to pull him over, take him into the coffee shop, they do their thing, you know who paid, um, you know yeah. all those things you can imagine, and these guys are already on their way. Like they they were going to this car park, they were on the job, and Neil's like just, you know, be you guys be here and I'll I'll catch up or whatever. That's how I've always thought of it. But I, I think. Um, Happy to hear if you've got any alternate thoughts. That's how I've always imagined it, though. No, I guess my one question is, is was he going to be there? And yes, exactly that. Does he make the decision when, when Hannah pulls him over of like, they don't need me at this? Yeah. That's um, a great, if I, if, you know, that's a great point. And it might even just be a protection thing. Like, I, Hannah was on me. I'm going to dump this car, but I'm not going there. I'm, I refuse. Right. That's a very Neil. That sounds like as you're diving into that line of thought, I'm like, well, that makes sense. If he's just been picked up by a cop, it doesn't feel like a very Neil thing to do for him to just go, uh, you know, for him to continue on the journey. Right. He's got to dump this guy and he can't look like they're up to something. It's in its own weird way, a callback to um, Michael telling Tone Loke, I've got nothing going on. Because yeah. if he had something going on <laughs> and he had to not have a cup of coffee with him, then Hannah would know something was going on. So there. Yeah, it's just That's look. probably reading a little too much into it, but there it is. So, Jordan, this is one thing I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna debunk. There is no such thing on the one eight minute podcast of reading too much into anything that we're watching. <laughs> Ninety seven minutes minutes into the film, I think we can safely say there is never too much that you're reading into it. You're reading the precise amount that you need to. Um, okay. it's just one of those. It's just one of those things. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, but I I like the even from the opening scene there's that wonderful opening scene is these guys don't always need to be together be doing something for a job yeah in the you know chris can totally go and do his demoli you know do a demolition you know i imagine that tom sizemore michael trito he may have uh he may have gone and stolen that truck because we hear later on when Vincent and the team are debriefing that the stuck uh, the truck was stolen out of Fresno, you imagine that that's perhaps where he's gone to go. Or and then there's a deleted scene on the cutting room floor of Michael going to buy hockey masks, um, mm-hmm. and and you've got these guys doing these contributing pieces to to an overall job. So I like to think that you know Neil doesn't always have to be everywhere. Once he gives an assignment to his crew, they kind of do what they need to do, but. Yeah, I would imagine. I would have imagined that after everything that had gone down, Neil may have wanted to be here, like sitting yeah. in that seat next to Trejo. Um, but, but he's like, I think as long this is the the thing. This is the other relationship element. I think as long as Chris is there, Neil's cool. Yeah, I think yeah. he knows. Yeah, that's true. I think he knows that. Like, if this was a job that was meant for Trejo and and uh, for Michael Torito, Tom Sizemore, I think he might have been there. But I think that Chris is like his you know, he's a lieutenant, he's main chief lieutenant. So he's like, if Chris is there, you've got it. I'm going to go, I'm going <laughs> to no, go. That's probably right. Yeah. I'm going to go to Edie's place. I don't need to be there. 
and, and also, you know, he's not a technical guy. He, we don't see him really do anything technical in this in this manner. Again, we've kind of established who does what, and mm. other than I guess he hot wires the ambulance. I suppose. I yep. mean, unless people just leave keys in ambulances, which is also not crazy. <laughs> yes. Um, but um, we don't really see him. He's not a guy who's going to be reprogramming the wires. He's not going to be the guy who's knocking stuff over. So, I mean, at the Precious Metal Exchange, what does he do? He just slinks back into that shadow, and he's just going to be the guy who watches. And Trejo can do that. So Yes. Yeah, he can just watch. He can just watch. It is funny. It's like, what is Neil's value? And it's just, I think Neil's... Neil's value to this crew, besides obviously his his proficiency with a weapon and control, is like he just sets the stage. He he's he's seeing every angle. That's what's yeah, so great right. about him. In that in that he's like where the other guys might be sort of more focused. He's like I've got every angle here. I've got every job. I know the exits. I know the you know you see him mapping it out in that in the cof, in the coffee house scene we've just passed. It came in Eleni. He's like he's checking the exits all the time. Keeps looking. Just well, in case. And he is, you're right, and, and it comes in handy at the Precious Metal Exchange, where he just hears one, uh, one thump, and he's like, we're out. Um, it's also just his force of will. Uh, he, yes. he is the leader. He just is. And, and that's a required job. And to go back to the A-team that we were referencing earlier, that's, I mean, George Papard had no skill other yeah. than he was George Papard, and he had a plan. This is so funny. People are going to get... I imagine people are going to get mad. Are you guys saying that Neil's crew is the A-team? No, we're <laughs> no. not. Archetypes no. happen. Archetypes happen. <laughs> this is, this is uh, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, you're right. It's it, There's... And, and with Vincent, um, Vincent doesn't display any technical proficiency from a detective. He's he's the... he's His skill is um, sort of hostile interrogation, if you like. You know, that's that's how we see him unfold most of the time most of the time that he's there and with neil it's you know uh, you know it's 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 very precise calm hostility with a gun <laughs> most of the time <laughs> most of the time no that's true that's true uh, yes and and he they're both marines correct both yes. hannah and and yeah macaulay yeah, macaulay, yeah. so uh, hannah we discover in the in that sort of um uh underpass cathedral scene uh confessional between brothers neil and uh, and john voigt sort of where where nate's kind of like you know you, this the risk might be too big in this we hear that hannah's a marine we see a marine tattoo on neil's right. arm just as he's exiting bed with Edie. so there's that that's the only reference to the fact that Neil was a Marine, other than the fact that, like, if you saw him with a, you know, an automatic weapon, he looks like he's been trained. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and, uh, but that's it. I mean, so that is interesting that, the, again, it's, a, it's all this, this twinning between the two of them that, uh, this is totally, I, you know, this is my first time on the podcast, and clearly we don't have uh, Al Pacino or, or, <laughs> or uh, Robert De Niro really in this minute. But I, I, here's the thing I've been thinking about a lot listening to your podcast, so if I can just take this wide for a second. And maybe yes. you've talked about this no, I'm on a podcast. Okay. Uh, have you ever considered what would have happened if they had uh, recast the roles opposite? I... If, I think we've talked about it, but I don't know. Like, uh, like, go with what you're going to say because we've we've talked about it. We've talked about it from a super practical perspective that 
you know, Art Linson, the producer of this film, saw Michael writing the script, who, who and, and Michael Mann was going to hand the script off to someone to direct. And he gave it to Art Linson and said, I think I've got something here. You know, I've worked on it on TV. I think it's a film. Da-da-da-da-da. And Art Linson looked at it, read the script, and said, you're an absolute lunatic if you don't direct this film. He's like, forget what you're going to do next. This is the film that you need to do right now. And they handed the script to Robert De Niro first, mm-hmm. and Robert read okay. for Neil. And he said, okay. I'm, I'm doing it. And so then they went okay. to Al for Vincent straight away, and he said, I'm doing it. And okay. there's a wonderful interview. It's like a, this is why YouTube is an absolute blessing. There's a junket interview that a lovely guest of the show, Ian Barr, um, recommended to me, which is a junket interview where like a bunch of international journalists are sitting around with Michael Mann and Robert De Niro and, and, and Al Pacino, all very close to the release of the film. And someone asked that question. And De Niro said, look, I read the script first. And I loved Neil, and I—that's who I wanted. That's the character I wanted to be. And he goes, "But if Al had read the script first, and he was Neil, I would have been Vincent." Mm-hmm. Like he said, he would I, do it. But I, 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 I struggle a bit to imagine how he would have played. How they would have, both of them would have played those characters. That would have been such a different film. It would have been such a different film. I would pay an untold amount of money to see that film. Yes. Uh, but I wonder how much of us thinking that is is how much these this film defined their career from this point onward. Yes, because now it seems obvious that that you know De Niro is going to play the cool, calm guy who's who's got his passions pretty much tamped down. Uh, but twenty years before that, when he was in Mean Streets and uh, yeah. Al Pacino was you know Michael Corleone, their their attitudes would have been completely opposite. You obviously. Young De Niro has to play uh, Vincent Hanna, and young Michael, uh, young Al Pacino has to play uh, Neil McCauley. It just—it uh, seems to me if they had made the film when Michael Mann first thought of it, it would have been obvious opposite casting. Yes, and they kind of intermingled to that point. It was like, all right, here we go. And even even before, um, even just a, a whisker before these characters, it was like they were both playing very eclectic roles, like coming up to this coming up to this movie where you could have gone either way, but like, yeah, I can't see, but yeah, you're right. I think maybe that's the only way. Maybe that's the only way. 1970, let's say 1975, let's go 20, yeah. 20 years earlier. And you're going to recast, yeah. you're going to recast the movie. You would definitely have Michael Corleone play Neil. That's, yeah. there's no question. There's no question. I, again, if I had a time machine and oh, a man. gun, you know, oh my God, <laughs> there's a, there was a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful, Ringer podcast, Bill Simmons podcast interview with John C. Riley this week, who is a mm-hmm. uh, in, in in the last couple of weeks. So as the time you're listening to this show, it's probably within a few weeks because um, those guys put out a stack of podcasts. So you'll have to sort of search. Um, but John C. Riley, apart from being just a wonderful, you know, insanely sort of huggable and generous, hilarious actor that he is. He's also a phenomenal dramatic actor and he discussed a play. I'm going to see if I can find the, um, I'll see if I can find the, the, the note here, but, um, he discussed a play he did in New York city with Philip Seymour Hoffman where Mm -hmm. they both were switching characters every second night. So there were two lead Uh characters and they were switching. Um, and when he was describing it, 
Um, and I know another guest of the show, Sean Burns, who's a film critic, a great Boston, Bostonian film critic, wrote about it going uh, in a recent review of his of, uh, of a new film called Sisters Brothers. Going, this guy's such a great, amazing dramatic actor that he, you know, had the had the uh, proficiency to stand across toe to toe with Philip Seymour Hoffman and swap roles with him night by night in this show. And that's yeah. when I'm thinking about it now. Like, can you imagine? It's like, you know, this movie costs 60 million, but can we just pay 120 and just film the whole thing again? <laughs> Let's go. Let's just go. Let's completely swap them out. It feels like, you know, uh, in, in hindsight, they'd be like, yes, just do it. Just have two versions of the same movie, but with these guys playing the same different characters. It would be such an, um, one of those like novelty event pictures that like, oh, yeah. you know, choose your own adventure. Do you want to see De Niro as the cop or do you want to see De Niro as the bad guy? Like, which one do you want to see? <laughs> but yeah, no, I, 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 it's, it's, it's a good question. But the, what we have talked about, Jordan, which you're going to find out and, and folks who are listening, I'm trying to find a, a, an appropriate time to talk about it is uh, people always saying, is it possible to make this movie again? Um, and one of the fundamental flaws that I have with this approach is I don't think there are two actors that are like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino now or since. I, it's funny that you say I, that's ever since, uh, you know, I've been talking about this podcast, anybody who will listen to me, um, <laughs> Thank you. sometimes against their will. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the things I've been bringing up a lot is trying to to come up with somebody who would even make people go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Mm. And I think there's one, and that's Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Now, who you could pair him with that would make people excited, I mean, now, I don't know. Now, now the, the, we stumbled on one, which is, imagine a Philip Seymour Hoffman face-off with Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis. Like, that's like yeah. the... And the only other actors that I think of like with Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think you've got to stumble on a connection. Like there has to be a yes. connection. They have to have been in a film together or something, maybe alongside one another, maybe. And, and then they can go off because there's like the fantasy casting now is like, all right, we'll get Oscar Isaac. Who's terrific to just play sure. Vincent Hanna and get John Bernthal. Who's like a De Niro, a young oh, love it. Yeah. De Niro. Like they're, you're just casting them because they're the Al Pacino and the De Niro, and you can sort of fill the rest of the cast out from there. But like, I think of those two guys, I'm like, yeah, but all I'm doing is casting for De Niro and Pacino now, like who I would want to play a younger yeah. version of them. I'm not thinking of who organically could be these two guys that I really am desperate to see face off <laughs> against one another. Because it just doesn't, I don't know whether, I don't know. And it's like, you know, we talk... In, in your world, it's like in the, in the LA confidential universe, you know, and, and these guys are now too old. So I'm sorry to say to both of you, but you were too old to do this, but it's like Joaquin Phoenix and Russell Crowe could play against each other. Like, mm. like they were in gladiator together. Obviously they've already played off one another, but you could totally see a Joaquin nailing a very silent, quiet role, um, uh, as a Neil and then see Russell Crowe you know, getting very blustery as Vincent or both. They could, they could flip nicely. They're both very great actors, but you know, they're now but like 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. Everyone's like, yeah. we've missed them. We've missed the boat <laughs> on, uh, on, on being, being able to do it. I've, uh, I've made no secret of this that, uh, you know, I have campaigned my entire TV career since I've had any clout whatsoever to do a, t a heat TV show. Uh, uh and, 
when I did uh, L.A. Confidential, you know, it was uh, produced by New Regency, um, which is the film company that made Heat. They yes. made L.A. Confidential. Really a lot of great films of the 90s. JFK, Natural oh Born God. Killers. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, a, a fantastic organization that I, I and, and so as soon as, you know, we got the green light on L.A. Confidential, I, I told them in no uncertain terms, <laughs> OK, heat next, please. Um, and I couldn't get it going. And, and you know, it's a hu- obviously it would be hugely different if Michael Mann was interested in doing it as opposed to me yes. uh, or maybe me in a couple of years, because uh, I, I really do feel like that's how you would have to do it now, because films like heat don't get made anymore. No. But you could, for for the same budget, you know, if, for example, this film was a $60 million film. There's no way you're sure. getting a $60 million, you know, it's it's in that, um, it's like that dead zone, the 40 to $100 million, you yeah. know, prestige adult drama, or what is it, 40 to 80. So it's like right in that 40 po- to 80, yeah. Yeah, 40 to 80. It's right in the pocket of those those great, probably all of those 90s films that you just mentioned that had those sort of budgets, drew those huge casts, those insane creatives that all sort of were rallied together but you could get a 60 million dollar you know six episode run of hate the movie on netflix or the series on netflix um and shoot it on location in los angeles and totally draw the talent and totally draw the the cast and totally draw that jordan you need to once you get up to the joe lynch episodes i think you've already gotten to one Am I right? Yeah. Twenty six episodes. Yeah, I've, I've listened to. Uh, yes, I've gotten Look, to one. This yeah. is this. If if there's any, if there's any, uh, if there's any justice in the world, it's a, it's a show that you pitch and that Joe Lynch gets to direct an episode. I think that that's the. <laughs> if there's any justice in the world, and I, and, and if I can just, and if I'll I'll fly to LA just to be there on set <laughs> one day, just for the pilot to try and rub that uh, the, the the bring bring the love of the the show and all of the people that have talked about this movie but yeah you're right i think that's you know it's it's one of those things that now would only exist as a as a short as a short run tv show yeah and and it's really it's funny it's all my favorite films are are movies that don't get made anymore and uh you know i spend some time trying to get into the feature world and i you know i have a novel that's been an option for film that i hope gets made but uh all the best crime movies cost two million dollars right now yeah um, and will resemble in no way, shape, or form heat. No. Um, <laughs> no. And that's just the realities. And, and you know, another really sad reality is uh, for television, you have to fight to shoot in L.A. Um, there have been huge changes to how the tax breaks work in the city. Uh. And so um, there's a real pressure now to shoot in other cities. Even if you set your show in L.A., uh, they'll try and convince you that you can make Vancouver look like Los Angeles. Vancouver, or Atlanta is huge at the moment. Yeah. Lots of films transferring to Atlanta for the tax breaks. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And, and so you would need somebody like HBO or, um, you know, somebody who's willing to spend money because uh, it gets pressed to you. You know, we shot the pilot of LA Confidential in Los Angeles um, and, and pressed very hard to do so because it literally is 20% off your budget. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't have to and, build what is already here. It seems to make oh, a no, lot of I mean, monetary I mean sense. I mean the opposite. I mean that because the tax breaks are so huge, oh my God. you lose 20% of your budget to taxes wow. that would otherwise um, go to your budget. And so the money people are like, well, what do you mean you have to shoot in LA? And I was like, well, it is called LA Confidential. <laughs> I, I would like to shoot it in, in LA if at all possible. But um, so – 
you know, I think a lot of, you know, movies can tend to pull it off. It's a little easier for movies to get the tax breaks, but for television, it's very hard. Yes. And so, you know, you would really, I would refuse, uh, I would, I would refuse to shoot a heat in Vancouver. That would just be a set. There's only, you know, and I, one of my other favorite films from that era, um, which have, has proven that, um, if you get great creatives behind it and you take something that you feel like is an unassailable premise, they took Fargo mm-hmm. and turned it into an absolutely phenomenal series. Oh, um, yeah. And that is like, that's a, that's a series that has kind of uh, been too scared to approach the like original source material and remake it, but has taken the, the ethos of it and just, Drew, drawn it out over different time periods to create this thing. So it's almost like, you know, that heat story, there's definitely uh, avenues and series mm-hmm. that if you took the same sort of method and went into other cities, Chicago feels like a perfect, you know, sure. this movie could exist in Chicago or an East Coast city. But uh, but at the same time, you know, you'd almost have to have the, the foundation story is the LA story and then the next season two, or a flashback, right. three episodes, you know, however, three episodes exist in Chicago when Vincent used to work there or when Neil was taking right. down scores in Chicago and they sort of cross paths at a, you know, do the real Charlie <laughs> Adamson and have them cross paths at a dry cleaner in like, you know, and they, <laughs> they just walk straight past each other and they don't know who they are <laughs> yet. And yeah, all those fun things that you could play with. But yeah, no, it's, it doesn't exist outside the water TV. I don't think for a heat, for, for any kind of a, a, a tackling heat again. Yeah, no, for sure. Sure. Well, no. look, ladies and gentlemen, um, this has been uh, another episode of One Heat Minute. Jordan Harper, as you can tell, by not only the bootleg figures, but um, the the heat obsession is one of our one of our very finest guests so far. So, Jordan, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Um you know, uh, uh, my my heart pours out to you as a as a as a fan of uh, of the source material that you talked about with LA Confidential. But best of luck, man. You just keep pursuing, and uh, and if you ever did get a heat movie up, uh, you know that there's a, a few fans that are completely inbuilt, and we've been stoking the fires with them throughout this entire podcast. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, Jordan, it's jordanharper.com. People just want to ser- seek you out. That's there, and oh. and, and, and on Twitter. There's not much at jordanharper.com these days. Just find me on Twitter. That's usually where I do most of my posting and 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 uh, keep people up to date. Awesome. Just Jordan underscore Harper at yeah. Twitter. At Jordan underscore Harper on the Twitter sphere. You can find him there. So thank you so much um, for being a part of this. And look, people are going to know that, you know, there's a couple of things that I deeply, deeply love. And I just didn't even broach it now until I closed. Jordan actually being a producer and a writer of the series Gotham, Bat- like Batman, is an absolute epic and seminal thing for me, and I've and I feel really proud that I've my restraint to not just turn to completely hijack the show and talk talk about Batman um, with Jordan this week. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so so um, thank you. Oh. So people I know listening going, I can't believe you didn't talk about Batman. Yes, I know I didn't talk about Batman, um, but. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Guys, this is the 97th minute of uh, the One Heat Minute podcast, uh, all about Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus Heat. You've been listening to uh, the Kate Manalini's coffee scene. We have a murderer's row of guests through there. So if, you, if this is the first episode you've listened to in a little bit, jump on back. There's some phenomenal guests. And we have 
some even more incredible guests coming up and uh, and if, if people have been reading on the Twitter sphere you would have already seen episode 100 Dante Spinotti the cinematographer of <laughs> is on it is uh, it, 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 this is my favorite thing that I've ever done and uh, and all the people listening and all of the amazing guests have made it so so thank you all again um, but uh, this has been another episode of one eight minute we'll catch you on the next one just around the corner thanks for having me.